Well, good morning. Oh, wow, they got the, the booming voice volume going. Uh, good morning. Uh, we are uh, thankful that you are here to worship with us uh, at Emmanuel Bible Church. And uh, today is uh, the first, it's actually not just the first Sunday, it's the first day of May. So um, if you feel like the year has gone by quickly, um, I'm right there with you. It's the first Sunday of the month, which means it's Communion Sunday, and we'll be gathered around the Lord's table uh, uh, at the conclusion of our time around the Scriptures, and that just kind of flows into um, our time of remembering the Lord's death and resurrection until He comes. So we're thankful that you're here. And so if you turn in your Bibles to uh, Job chapter 10, chapter 10 is our, uh, is our text this morning, really, but we're finishing what we began in Job's um, response uh, to his friend Bildad. Bildad had something to say to Job about how Job has some sin that is hidden and he must repent. And if you guys recall, the thing that we could say about Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, the friends of Job, one, we could say that their theology is accurate. They do not say anything, as, at least concerning who God is, that is off. They, they claim that God is a holy God and that, that in his righteousness, that every sin will be paid in full to the judge. They are correct. Their difficulty is not in their theological acumen. They know who God is. Their problem is applying. Now, how do we reconcile some of the things that are difficult in this life? For example, everything that's happened to Job how do we reconcile that with the perfectly sovereign and righteous God? Their solution is simple and black and white. Job, you've done something wrong. God doesn't accidentally or randomly pour pain and suffering into someone's life. This is a direct result of something you have done. It's retribution. It is direct judgment for some hidden sinfulness. And so Eliphaz was more delicate in his approach to suggesting that there's something wrong. Bildad is a little bit more direct in saying you need to repent of whatever it is. When we get to Zophar, he'll remind him that the fires of hell are hot. And he'll take it even a step further. So after Bildad and after Eliphaz have already spoken into this space, that God is who God is, perfectly sovereign, absolutely righteous, and he caused this to happen to you, Job, because of something you have done. This is Job's response in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And uh, uh, we will walk through a little bit of chapter 9 real quickly to kind of get us moving here. But Job has a problem with God's sovereignty. And um, if we take a quick look here, and by way of introduction to chapter 9, he, in verses 1 through 4, he, he establishes the fact that God is absolutely in control. God is who God is. In fact, we could say that from verses 3 of chapter 9 to verses 13, Job once again eloquently and excellently presents to us a view of God that is absolutely accurate and wondrous. He says, if one, this is starting in verse 3, if one wished to contend with him, no one could answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. 
When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away who can turn him back. Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. See, Job is agreeing with everything that Bildad has said about God. He is absolutely in control. He is absolutely righteous, and he does as he pleases. No man could fight him or contend against him or bring him into a court of law and possibly win. So we're saying God is inaccessible in that sense. He is way beyond us. He is powerful in the sense that he removes mountains, and nobody even realizes it because he could do whatever he wants. God is unapproachable, meaning that you can't tell him what he is doing wrong. He goes on to talk about how, how God is difficult, right? Because whatever he does, right? Verse 14, then can I answer him? How can, then can I answer him? Choosing my words with him. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. I'm right. And he's not saying he's perfectly sinless. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been sacrificing regularly. He understands that they are prone, human beings are prone to sin. That theology is correct in Job. He is saying he is innocent of anything that deserves this exact condemnation. There's nothing he's done that would require God's justice to kill his children, to take away his home, to take everything that he has, to cover him in sores, to bring him this close, an inch from dying, and kind of barely lingering on. There's nothing he has done that deserves, right, that would weigh out the scales perfectly, that would make sense for God's justice to be poured out upon him. But what does he have? He's, God's not beatable in a court of law. So he's saying, I can only plead for mercy. And we should underline that idea because his whole point is, I can only ask my accuser for mercy. Something that there is no room for Bildad or Eliphaz. I mean, there's room for it, meaning that you can repent, you can confess, you know, sins that, that you have committed, and then maybe God will grant you mercy. But Job's point is, I haven't done those sins. So I can't, I can't confess something that's not true. All I have is the capacity of asking God to demonstrate mercy to me. God is um, inexplicable, verses 21 through 24, meaning Job says, For my part, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. He's saying, like, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers his the faces of its judges, if it, if it is not he, who then is it? He's saying, if God is not the one that is bringing right, destruction upon the good and the bad of this life, then who's doing it? The reverse part of that, we said in the New Testament, Jesus affirms that God causes the rain, the nice showers, the life-giving uh, moistures. He brings that upon the good and the bad. So his common grace is available to everyone. Well, Job is looking at it from the underneath. And he's saying, yeah, and his common, right, his common pouring out 
of wrath generally upon all of humanity, that falls on everyone too. The good and the bad. He finds God inexplicable that way because he does as he pleases and Job doesn't understand where he would fall in that. And the final thing he says in uh, chapter 9 is that he is expiring. He says, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs um, of a reed. I'm like an evil sweep, swooping on the prey. His time is, is almost over. And with all of these questions, right, there's nothing for him to grasp onto. Well, his options are, and we'll walk through this really quickly because I want to get to chapter 10. His options are, well, he could cheer up, right? That's in uh, 27 uh, through 29. Um, in other words, it's, it's almost like Solomon in Ecclesiastes saying, okay, well, if I say to myself, I'll forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face, I'll, I'll put on a happy smile, a be of good cheer. He says that I, if I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent, it doesn't change anything. He says, well, how about if I clean myself up, if I wash myself with snow, cleanse my hands with lye, Yet you will plunge me back into a pit, talking about like a, a, a swampy pit, and my clothes will abhor me again. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, absolve me of everything. And then uh, um, see, if, if I find a mediator, this is, this is the, the, the thing that we will latch on to and that Job will latch on to. Starting in verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me let, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. He is saying, look, I, I, it's like I, I can't even speak. I can't, I can't do anything. I need someone to stand between me and God who would put their hand on God and put their hand on me. And give me a, a fair shake. Give me a speaking. Someone that would step into the gap of God being very God and me being very mortal. And we will expand on that. And Job will expand on that um, as we see his other um, responses and arguments and prayers. But all that by way of a quick review so that we get the background of that really being chapter 9, being his response to Bildad. Now in chapter 10... This is now his, 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 his prayer, um, his lament before God. And it, uh, a couple of things we want to say before we pray and open this portion of Scripture. Um, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they all have good theology that they speak at Job. This is what God is like, so something's wrong with you. This is what God is like, something's wrong with you. Job responds back and he agrees constantly with who God is. Yes, God is that sovereign. Yes, this is God's doing. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, but I am innocent. All right? And what he does, though, is that he responds to them in kind, but at the end of Job's response to them, he almost always has a response that directs himself back up to the Lord. So we can't say that his friends are always talking about God to Job. Job responds back about God to them, and then he always talks to God himself. This is important, because in the middle of his, of his despair, we will see that Job is constantly, right? He is constantly stabilized by his good theology. 
He is not just drifting in the wind. I mean, he is struggling. And, and, and should, if we ask ourselves the overly simplistic question, should any Christian or could any Christian actually talk like this? The answer is yes and no. He shouldn't. She shouldn't. But we do. See, it's not an example, right? Chapter 10 is not meant to be a model for how we are to talk about and to God. It is an example of what has happened to a godly man. What keeps him from going over the edge constantly is the fact that he knows who God is. He knows exactly who God is. You have three friends and Job, and all of their theology is accurate. But Job is trying to figure out how to apply this in a way that's sincere, true, and that is helpful. Because I don't see it. The friends see it. It's simple to them. You're hiding something. Just come clean. You're going to make it worse. God's eventually going to kill you. All right? If you don't give up what it is you're hiding. For Job, it's much more complex because he knows I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of something that deserves this. I'm not even sure how to confess something I can't confess. All I can ask for is mercy. I need a mediator. And that's where we find Job. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's unpack chapter 10 together. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we study the book of Job. And Father, remind us that, 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 um, that the theology in Job is rich as good as any that we see in all of the scriptures, that the things that are affirmed about you are true, but that the difficulty that Job experiences is real life. Father, keep us from pretension. We, we often find ourselves constantly thinking how victimized we are, how difficult our life is, how estranged and broken and, uh, and, and, and troublesome our difficult life can be. And here you have given us a man that is godly, that loves the Lord. And certainly we can affirm together in the course of this narrative that Job has done nothing to deserve all the things that have come into his life. So help us not to to make that something that is our application, but instead to recognize when someone is injured or hurting or in pain. And then to remember whether that's us or that's someone we care for, that God is always sufficient, that he is always there, that he is absolutely powerful and sovereign, but that he is always and exclusively Um, loving and wise and intentional in all that he does. So help us to trust in you. Help Job to trust in you as we unpack this and uh, recognize, Lord, that you are the God that you are and we desire to worship and know you well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick it up from uh, chapter 10, What we're dealing with here is Job's questions in the form of a prayer. He's going to ask God four questions. And as he asks these questions, the thing to recognize is these are the questions from the perspective of despair. Of despair. That's the only way I could describe what is happening to Job. He is suffering. He is suffering to the point of wishing that he was dead. 
And again, I, I know in our black and white thinking about everything, the first place we would go if this was a person, a friend, um, a co-worker or a relative, and they proclaim and believe in God and Jesus Christ, and they came to us and told us words like this, words of despair that sounded like, I wish I was never born, I wish I was dead. The first place we would go is, man, maybe you're not a believer, Right? Well, welcome to the family that is on this side, right, of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I, I, I resonate with those guys. I get it. We are naturally suspicious that if you talk like that, something's wrong with you. Again, I'm not in any way insinuating that Job's speaking the way that he speaks, that we should model that. We should, this, this is not meant to be a model prayer. This is meant to express his despair. And I'm not saying that if someone came to us with that kind of despair, that automatically we should assume they're Christians. No, I am just saying that the possibility of suffering is real. And that we as human beings don't fully grasp God's sovereignty in it all. I'll remind you again that of all the characters that have been mentioned and that will be mentioned in the book of Job, none of them is certain that Job's faith is sincere or will make it through. Job is not certain. Job's wife certainly is not certain. Job's friends absolutely are uncertain. The devil is fairly uncertain. The only one that is certain about what will happen to Job on the other side is God himself. And for me, that completely changes my perspective of everything that Job is going through. God knows what he is doing, and it has an end. God has poured out tremendous suffering in the life of Job, but it has a purpose. And that when all is said and done, Job's faith will be proven. It will be found blameless, even as God himself has already declared him to be blameless. He's the only one that knows exactly where this will end. But poor Job, he doesn't know where this will end. And neither will we if we are caught in that difficult moment. So this is the cries of a man of God who has lost hope and it's in the midst of despair. Again, I remind you, it is not a model prayer for us, but something that is happening to this godly man. He begins, right, with the question, why are you against me? I want to pause in verse 1 first before we look at 2 and 3, which is the heart of why are you against me. Verse 1 kind of introduces this prayer. He says again for a second time, um, he said it earlier in chapter 9, 21, I loathe my life, I will give free utterance to my complaint. When he says I loathe my life, it's a strong emotional term, it means to despise. He's saying, man, I hate this life right now. He's just being honest. And he's saying, because I hate this life, let me, just, let me just let it go. Let me just give free utterance to what I'm saying is so difficult and terrible about what's going on in my existence. But here's the interesting thing. So he says, I loathe my life in chapter 9, verse 21. He says, I loathe my life here in chapter 10, verse 1. He'll say this same word again, but our English translates it differently. In chapter 42, verse 6, after God appears, speaks to Job, and declares who God is, everything that Job has already been declaring, that his friends have been declaring, God shows up and says, well, let me see who it is that's demanding me to account myself to him. 
And when he speaks of all the things that God is, you know, can you reach down into the deepest parts of the ocean and measure it with your palms, right? Can you, can you, have you made the stars? Are you the one that has fashioned them? Because apparently I need to answer to you, so you tell me your credentials, and then we'll get down to the business of talking as equals. And when all that is said, then Job says that he repents in dust and ashes, and that's literally the verse, verse chapter 42, verse 6. He says, therefore I despise myself, therefore I loathe my life and repent in dust and ashes. Here, right, he loathes his life because he, he sees no light at the end of the tunnel. It's that soft whisper of despair. I hate this. I'm done. Right? But there, the same word is used to speak an utterance of embarrassed acknowledgement of speaking too harshly, too, too quickly, and wrongfully. It's an embarrassed, rebuked sense in which he whispers out, I was so wrong. I despise myself for thinking these things. How differently, right? Job uses the same word. And right now, though, in this moment in chapter 10, he's in the midst of his pain. He's in the midst of his despair. So he begins with the first question. Why are you, you being God, why are you against me? It's like God is treating him like he's a God hater, like he's an evildoer. Verse 2. I will say to God, do, you, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? He says, don't condemn me. The, the verb for condemn, if, it's, if, if a different verbal stem is used and it's used in the causal, it means to do something that's evil, to cause evil to abound. But he's saying, don't condemn me. In other words, don't treat me. And in this verb stem here, it's saying, don't treat me like I have done something that's evil. Don't condemn me. Don't judge me. Don't destroy me. He says, let me know why you contend. Why do you strive against me? Why do you attack or quarrel against me? What charges have you brought against me, Lord, that results in these things, these difficult things in my life? The key question is why? Job seems to feel the oppression, right, of God upon him. And I love how in verse 3, it, it's like his theology keeps seeping in. He says, does it seem good to you, God, to oppress, right, to oppress this person, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? You notice that he says, does it seem as a good thing to despise the work of your hands? He's reminded that he, as God's creation and as the image bearer, in every way, is God's handiwork, his piece of art, something good and excellent. And instead, would you favor, would you lean towards the designs of the wicked, like the wicked or those that, you know, that, that, that work against the things of the Lord, they might deserve such a thing, but I'm the work of your hands. There's almost an appeal to the way that Job approaches this. And it's, um, it's the same dilemma that we see again and again in Job, right? The dilemma is this. God is absolutely sovereign. And is he absolutely loving? 
And if he is both, how can this possibly be having, happening? And remember, Rabbi Kushner's solution to that was that God cannot be both absolutely loving and absolutely powerful, so he must be somewhat very powerful, just absolutely loving. He wants to do better for us, but there are some things he cannot control. See, Job's not willing to concede that. His theology is strong enough that it keeps causing him to ask why. The dilemma that he feels is that this is God, very God, powerful, yes, in control, yes, loving, yes. So why does this this happen to me? If I am a worshiper of God, I am not a doer of evil. It doesn't make any sense. You, You notice that he claims, right, a blamelessness. Um, you despise the work of your hands. You favor the designs of the wicked. Um, he speaks about how he is not to be blamed for something. And, and as I mentioned already, Job says so about himself in, uh, in uh, chapter 9, verse 21. But God says so about Job when he tells Satan, Have you considered my servant Job blameless and upright? In chapter 1, verse 8, and then again in chapter 2, verse 3. So God is affirming his blamelessness. Job is, is, is convinced that God knows that he is blameless. So why is this happening? And you know, we will ask that when we encounter grief, suffering, difficulties, right? Why is this happening? I, I, can't, I can't say that we can put our finger all the time on every, every reason why God allows right, difficult and bad things to happen to those that love him. But I can say two things. One, I could say it's not a direct condemnation of you. How can I say that? Well, because Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever we might suffer in this life, it's not retribution for our sins. It would be wrong for it to be retribution for us. It would be unjust. Why? Because if we have placed our faith in Christ and our sins have been paid for in full on the cross, then why would they be paid in addition here on earth? Right? Our sins have been paid in full. I mean, that's not to say that there's not consequence for our sins. If I've done something exceptionally wicked that is illegal, I might pay for those. But God himself is not condemning us twice. He's paid for our sins on the cross, so we are free of of guilt as far as God is concerned. And the second thing we can say, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. Because the evidence of God's love, first and foremost, is that he sent Jesus Christ to take our place in death and punishment. That doesn't necessarily leave us with the answer to the question why. But at least our theology controls us It guides us. It keeps us. And that's Job. In the midst of his despair, and again, he is not giving us a model of how to pray to God when things are going bad. But in the midst of his despair, we see constantly this glimmer of hope, this uh, this light that stabilizes him, that keeps him from going over the edge. And it's because he knows who God is, and he knows who he is, and he knows who God is to him. So he's saying, why is he against me? He's not just saying, God, I hate you, you're against me. Because he can't say that. He can't say that God is just against him for no reason. He's saying, I don't understand it, but there has to be something because God is absolutely powerful. This is God. He is absolutely sovereign. But he's also absolutely loving and gracious and merciful. So I I need to understand why. The second question he asks in verse 4 to 7, why do you stalk me? Why do you stalk me? This is the way he puts it. 
Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? He's saying God is not like human beings. Is his eyes limited like our eyes are limited? Does he see as man sees? Is he limited, right, by fleshly, human, limited understanding or eyes? You know, uh, 1 Samuel 16, when, um, when Samuel is asking, well, is, uh, is this son of Jesse, is he, is he the guy that's going to be the king? No. How about this one? How about this one? Etc. And, and when, he, you know, before uh, the, the lot falls on David, right, the shepherd boy, um, God tells this to Samuel. The Lord says to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. This is exactly what Job is, is pointing out. He is saying before there ever was a David, before there ever was a, a, a nation of Israel, he is saying God doesn't see as man sees. And that's exactly what the Lord says to Samuel. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is exactly what Job is saying. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see like a man? Job is hoping that of all the individuals that are gathered around him, that God would be the one that would look into and peer into his soul, that would look upon his heart, that would understand his motives, that would know that he does love God. Because so far, Eliphaz and Bildad have not been able to see that. They can only see what's on the outside. Bad things are happening to you. You must have done bad things to deserve it. And he's hoping that God is one that sees on the inside. In fact, he is suggesting very strongly, right, that God, he is affirming that God is the one that sees on the inside. Secondly, in verse 5, he says, are, are you a God that is limited in your experience? And the answer is no, right? In verse 5, he says, are your days as the days of a man or your years as the years of a man? Psalm 90, um, verse 2 says, before the mountains are brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is an eternal God. He's not like us. He's not limited in his duration. He doesn't learn along the way. Like we don't expect, right, our pre-teenage children to make major life decisions. Why? Because they don't have a lot of experience. In fact, we have, right, and we being parents and older individuals in the room, we might have more experience and we could still make bad decisions. Isn't that true? God is not like us at all. He hasn't been growing in his knowledge or experience. He is everlasting to everlasting. His days aren't like the days of a man or years like the years of a man. He's not limited in experience. The point is that Job knows that God is aware of his innocence, right? So his quandary is, why is this kind of stuff happening? Look at verse 6 and 7. Are your years as a man's years that you should seek out my inequity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand. His point is, Lord, you're not limited in experience, in knowledge, in wisdom. You know it all. And since you know it all, you know that I'm not guilty. Verse 7, although you know that I'm not guilty, but there's none to deliver me. There's no one to go between us. Lord, you are not limited in your experience and knowledge. And so where is my advocate? Where is my in-between? And how can I prove myself to you when you already know all things? 
You know, Job repeats this idea of an advocate or a deliverer. In Job 5, 4, he talks about how there is no deliverer to deliver um, um, individuals that are crushed at the gate. Job 9.33, he said that there is no arbiter, no mediator between us that could lay his hand on God, that could lay his hand on me. In 16.19, he will say, uh, even now, behold, my witness or my advocate in heaven, there has got to be one that will testify for me in heaven. And by the time we get to 19, verse 25, it's almost like this idea of a mediator, an in-between, an arbitrator, right, starts to develop in Job's eye, uh, in his thinking. It's almost like th- there's this theological intuition. And by the time we get to Job 19.25, he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. He knows, right, that someone will step in for him. He's been talking about how he needs someone, how he needs someone, and he knows that eventually that someone will be there. And for us, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we look back on the life of Job and realize that's exactly who Jesus is. He's our deliverer who gave himself for our sin to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's from Galatians 1.4. He, he is um, our strengthener and, and the one that stands with us when no one else does. Like in 2 Timothy 4.16 when Paul says, At my first defense, talking about his Roman defense in court, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul says that, that last part tells us that there's a recognition that the rescue of God is not necessarily from the hands of the Romans, but it is into eternity future. And Paul's correct. He's going to be martyred by the Romans, who have his head cut off, but he will be ushered in and protected and rescued from this life to the life that is to come. See, so we have that theology fully realized. In Job, that is becoming realized little by little throughout the book, that he needs someone to go in between him because he is not guilty, but there's no one to deliver him. And his question is, God, why are you watching my every movement? Why are your eyes upon me? Why are you stalking me to see where I might stumble? Third, verses 8 through 17, a longer section. He says, why did you even make me? If this is your intention, why did you cause me to be? Why did you create me? Verses, uh, starting verse 8, is, uh, um, is this uh, beautiful statement of God's handiwork in creating Job. Look at verses 8 through 11. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay. Will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinew. Like all of this, verses 8 through 11, is Job saying that it is, it is God who has personally, wonderfully, shaped me into exactly this human being that God made me that God took me like 
like clay, or the illustration he uses is if you take milk and you curdle it into little little bits of cheese, and I, I guess we can think of it in our vernacular as kind of these, these small cells that are kind of multiplying and growing. And from these small cells that are growing, God clothed him, he fashioned around him skin and flesh, he knit together his bones and sinews, and he kind of grew. He is talking about from the very conception, right, to the kind of turning into a full-fledged human being in terms of all of our limbs and all of our faculties. God did it all. You made me, Lord. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's Psalm 139, 13. And if you look at this good theology that God has made us His, He's made us with His hands, He's personally invested Himself in bringing us to being This is the stuff that's keeping Job from going nuts. It's him recognizing that God is the creator, the creator of all things and the creator of him. And this is him wondering and asking the question why in a way that says like, why did you bother to fashion and carefully make me, to give me the personality that that you gave me, to give me things like taste and hearing and eyes to see, to behold the wonders of your creation. Why did you make me as carefully, thoroughly, and personally as you have to just destroy me and, and bring me back down to the dust? Verse 12, you have granted me life and steadfast love. Your care has preserved my spirit. This is what I'm saying. His, his, his theology keeps breaking through. His knowledge of who God is keeps him grounded. He's saying, you gave me life, the hayim. It, it, it means the life and the good stuff, the stuff that you experience that is life. You've given me the experience of human living, of daily existence, and not just you know, a heart beating and a, and a brainwave pattern moving, but I experience the life that you've given to me. And then the second word is, you've also given me hesed, right? You've given me steadfast love. And we've talked about this word that Job keeps bringing up again and again. It's a, it's a huge word in the Old Testament. In most of our translations, our, our ESV at least, translates it steadfast love. And the reason why it does is because there's two elements to it. There's a gracious element to it. That's why it's love. That there's an element that says that it is undeserved, it is kind, it is merciful, it's compassionate, it's given freely, and that's the kind of love that it is. So there's an element of that word that means that it is gracious, generous, magnificently um, um, kind and merciful. And then there's another part, a second half of that same word that means that it's enduring in terms of its faithfulness, in terms of its unbreakability. And so it's often translated covenant faithfulness. And you have, to, you have to combine both of those to understand what hesed means. And that's why we often translate it steadfast, as in it is faithful, unbreakable love, gracious mercy. He's saying, you've given me life, a life to experience, and you've cast your favor upon me. You've poured grace and steadfast love into my life. Your care has preserved my spirit. And by spirit, he means his life. Everything that Job has experienced that he can look back and go, man, that was such a good thing. God had poured that into him. His care had caused his life to be abundant. God was so good to Job. 
That's verse 12. If you just lifted verse 12 out, you would see Job in exactly what he is as a worshiper of God. But everything around it is couched in the difficulty of his moment in the midst of his despair. And he's saying, Lord, why, why did you even make me? I know you meant good. Verse 12 explains that you meant good. But these things are now intolerably missing from my life. There's an oppressive watchfulness over me. Look at verse 13. Yet these things you hid in your heart, I know that this was your purpose. What he means by that is that these things that I've just said, how you have poured love, steadfast love into my life, you've made blessing overflow, yet the things that have happened to me, you knew that you were going to do. This was your secret purpose. This is part of your sovereign plan for me. Verse 14, if I sin, you watch me, you catch me. And do not acquit me of my iniquity. And you don't let me get away with it. You don't acquit me of anything that I've done wrong. You just need to wait and you'll catch me. Verse 15, if I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head. For I'm filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. Saying I can't lift up my head for shame because I'm disgraced. I feel judged. My life is over. Everything is falling apart. Look upon my affliction. The word for look is an interesting word there. The NIV translates that phrase, look upon my affliction as I am drowning in my affliction. It feels like I'm going under, Lord. And were my head lifted up, if I came up for air, you would just hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. God is in hunt after Job in a way that Job doesn't understand. And in fact, God, by using his, uh, his wondrous means, it means that he works wonders and miracles and the supernatural against them. You renew your witness, verse 17, against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. That last part, it, it literally means that he is bringing, right, another wave upon another wave of fresh troops to attack and to attack and attack him. His point is, I can't win. I can't get away with anything. Is God waiting, right, for Job to fail? Is God waiting for us to fail? Job claims that God is watching and that as soon as he sees something, then that will be the end of Job, right? That there's this oppressive watchfulness waiting for Job to fail. Now, there is a watchfulness over God. But the way that Jesus would put it in Matthew 10, 29 to 30 is that God sees the sparrows, right? And not a single one falls from the trees except that God sees it. And God sees the number of hairs that are on your head. He knows everything about us and he cares for us intimately. But Job can't see all that. He could just see God's sovereign will and his, his absolute omniscience working against him. So he says, why did you make me? Why did you fashion me as carefully as you did? Why did you pour life and steadfast love into me for a season and then to take all that away in this time, through this means, in the midst of this despair? And the final question for, for God in Job's prayer of despair, why don't you just end me? This is a return to Job chapter 3, remember? When he is declaring that he wishes he was never born or he is born, a stillborn, 
That, that's exactly what, what he is saying. Verse 18, why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before my eye had seen, before an eye, any eye had seen me. He's saying, Dude, I, I wish I was just either born dead or never survived the womb at all. Verse 19, and were it though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. And I wish, right, like if, if, not, if not dead upon arrival, right, dead soon enough that from the womb they just walk me over to my grave. Let it be swift and absolute and don't give me these days. Verse 20, are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I might find a little cheer. He says, I don't have a lot of time. So just give me a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy for the moments that I have. It's a recognition of his mortality. And that he is saying, man, if you could just kind of remove all the junk out of my life for just a moment, let me catch my breath and let me enjoy with good cheer, maybe some good memories and then die. Verse 21, before I go, and shall I not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick as darkness. I mean, this is just him pouring out darkness to darkness to darkness. And the question I asked you and that we need to understand is, is this a model for for Christians to pray? in the midst of their suffering and despair? And the answer is no. And that's not what Job is trying to do. He's not counseling us. He's not sitting there going, man, this is the worst, and I can't, I wish I was never born. But in the New Testament, if you guys are reading this later, please make sure that you, you know, that's not what he's trying to do. He's just trying to express what he feels. Is this okay for us to pray like this? The answer is yes and no. The answer is yes in the sense that we might feel this, and we should speak to the Lord in our pain. We should speak to the Lord in the depths of our, of our dis- despair and our suffering. But is it okay in the sense that, is that the right way for us to pray or to think about God? The answer is no. How do you react to, to Job's prayer? Do you look at Job and say, oh, Job, man, listen, I, I'm willing to go with you a little bit on that, but oh, you've gone too far. You know, you, got, you need to shut your mouth now. That, that's too crazy. You're talking crazy talk, right? Do you go, Job, amen. I agree with you. Now that you've said that and I see your life, God is unfair. Let's just go all the way with this. I mean, if we're going to say that God is doing stuff that we don't understand and we keep asking why, stop asking why. Let's just admit it. God is mean. Or maybe he's not as strong as he wants to be. Maybe he's like, like Rabbi Kushner says. He loves us crazy, but his strength is only a lot stronger than us, not perfect. He can't always control everything that goes bad. Now, both of those are unacceptable. I think the right thing is to consider the, the depth and the despair from which Job comes and to realize that God is allowing Job to speak such. In fact, in the end, God does not hold his language against Job. Job is starting to leak. His faith is starting to fail, but his faith is still faith. We see it in the theology of God that constantly comes out in his prayers. He knows who God is, his creator. He knows God is the reason why he's enjoyed life. He knows God is the reason why anything good has happened. He knows all of that. It's his knowledge of God and who God is that preserves him. 
Because in the midst of all of this, even when he says, I wish I were not alive, I wish I were never born, you notice he never says, I'm about to take my own life. Why? Because he said it over and over again. The Lord is the one that has right to everything concerning life. He gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1.21. His theology still controls him. In the midst of his crying out, sometimes just, just lashing out, he still knows who God is. He just doesn't know why. The thing I draw you back to is this idea that he needs an advocate. He needs a defender. He needs someone to step between him and this God who seems to be doing things that he doesn't understand. His theology holds him still. He knows that God is absolutely sovereign and complete control. He knows that this, everything that has come upon Job in this moment is part of God's hand and what God is doing in Job's life. This is God. But he also remembers that it was God that gave him beautiful children, that gave him an excellent life, and that allowed him to worship well. That is all God. He knows it all. He knows that God is the one that's created him wonderfully, carefully, personally, lovingly. He knows the one, that God is the one that it continues to watch after him and to look to him and is listening and knows that he is innocent. He knows that God is right and powerful and true and loving. And so his question is why? And the only thing he could come to is the two things we mentioned earlier. One, I need, to, I need God's mercy. And two, I need a mediator. I need someone to step in between us. To make this right, and I've said it already to you, but I'll remind you again that in the midst of this, can we explain for today, for us, for New Testament Christians, when we go through such suffering, can we explain why that's happening? No, we can't. And at the end of Job, we'll find that there is no solution to the question why. But by the time we are in the New Testament era, we can always remind ourselves, we don't know why these things happen but we can be absolutely affirmed that God still loves us. How do we know? Because he sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. And because he's promised us eternity future and a home and a presence and a belonging with God the Father in all of his fullness and holiness and joyful love, not because we deserved it, but because we placed our faith in Christ. He is the mediator that Job's instinct, his theological instinct, keeps telling him that he needs. He is that missing piece that would bridge the gap for him between why, I might not get the answer why, but I know the what in terms of God's love for me. That's where we stand. We are not like Job. And if Job is, is any illustration, it's certainly not the way that the Christians should pray. Because even if we confess that we are having a hard time, we don't understand, etc., the thing that we could keep coming back to is we have a mediator. We have an advocate. We have a redeemer. And we have the full evidence of God's love for us. So this life may not be everything that we hoped it would be. But that's okay. Because the life to come is assured because of Christ's death and his resurrection and, and his love and work on the cross for us.